0: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen.
1: When I arrived in New York City, I was meeting all these people who were, who were looking for community. And felt this kind of instinctive pull of, well, what would it look like to create this community for these people who are so hungry? And the piece of it that had to do with being a pastor was sort of like a unpleasant side effect for a long time. And I really sort of kicked and screamed my way through that process.
0: Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com/notseenradio. That's p a t r e o n.com/notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Emily M.D. Scott. She founded St. Lydia's Dinner Church, a progressive LGBTQ plus affirming congregation in Brooklyn, New York, where worship takes place around a dinner table. She's a Lutheran pastor in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. She's a graduate of Yale Divinity School and the Institute of Sacred Music. Her writing has appeared in the New York Times and her work at St. Lydia's, which sparked a wider dinner church movement, has been featured in the Wall Street Journal and The Atlantic. After serving eight years at St. Lydia's, Scott is now creating a new church community, Dreams and Visions, in Baltimore, Maryland. Today we're discussing her recent book, For All Who Hunger, Searching for Communion in a Shattered World. Pastor Emily Scott, welcome to Things Not Seen.
1: Thank you. I'm so glad to be here.
0: Well, I want to start out asking you a very broad question, but I think it will help me and my listeners begin to get a sense of where you are coming from. What is church? How do you define it? Oh my goodness.
1: (laughs) That's a big one. For me, I think church is any gathering of people who are drawn to the divine presence, and specifically in Christianity, drawn to find that presence through
0: listening to and telling the stories of Jesus. And so when we talk about gathering people together and telling the stories, One of the things that you do so well in your book, For All Who Hunger, is you are telling basically the stories of how you came to found this church, St. Lydia's, in New York, and also the ways in which you came to discover new truths about yourself, some of them which were revelatory and some of them which you struggled with. But one of the things that really struck me about this book is just how honest and raw it is in that storytelling Oftentimes when I'm speaking with a guest who has that kind of approach, I'm fascinated to find out how it is that you achieved that voice because having tried to write myself, I know it's not easy. So if I may, how did you come to have the courage and the ability to sort of write with the kind of candor with which you've begun to tell the kind of stories that you have here in your book for all who hunger?
1: I think years of very intimate preaching at St. Lydia's probably led to the voice in the book. You know, I preached twice a week to a group of about 25 people, and it was always my feeling that only when I shared some piece of my own story or my own experience did the gospel kind of open up for others to find their themselves in that story. And so the preaching that I did for many years was very raw in some ways. I was careful not to preach from a place that was too raw and that asked the congregation to care for me, but I did practice asking myself where I saw myself in the story and then inviting others to kind of see where they might have seen themselves in the gospel story. So certainly all that time of preaching kind of led to that voice, but I think also I was really... Struck by the work of Mary Carr in her book, The Art of Memoir. And she talks about a sort of sensory relationship to memoir writing where you delve into your felt experience of memory and almost kind of viscerally or physically immerse yourself in it. And that had a big impact on me. And I felt like if I'm going to write a memoir, then I need to try and be as honest as I can be about that story because I think there's probably other people who have experienced the things that I was experiencing around loneliness and feeling lost and searching for God. It's not an exercise for the faint of heart. <laughs> Writing in that way really asks a lot of the writer and it, and it feels pretty unpleasant a lot of the time.
0: What I love about that answer is you've already begun to sort of move us in the direction that I was hoping that we would go. Because when you're talking about these kind of reconnections of senses, like you said with Mary Carr with The Art of Memoir, you're talking about things like visuals, yes, but also tastes and smells. And throughout your book, For All Who Hunger, you're bringing in the sensory language. You talk about the spiciness of the chickpeas. You talk about the, the aroma of the basement that was flooded <laughs> and the canal that you're walking past. There in the neighborhood in Brooklyn where the church was. And all of that draws us back to the fact that St. Lydia's, the church that you helped to found, was a very sensory centered church. It was a dinner church. And for my listeners, help me understand and help us understand what is meant by that term. Walk us through what it was like to be at a service at St. Lydia's.
1: St. Lydia's was founded around the idea that there were a lot of people in New York City, where I lived as a young adult, who We're really looking for some kind of connection, both with God and with others. It's a very big and anonymous city, and a lot of folks were really kind of lonely and searching. And when I set about founding the church, I felt that it was very important to create a really intimate setting. And I had also noticed at the same time that whenever I had people over to my apartment, which was this tiny little studio apartment in New York City, and cooked a meal and kind of shoved people in around my dining room table, which... There was no dining room. It was just a table in the middle of my studio and my bed was like in the corner. But whenever I had that experience, people were just like, oh my goodness, it's so amazing to have home cooked food because that, that was so rare in New York City. So we kind of built a church around this idea of sharing a meal together, which is something that New Yorkers don't get to do very often. We don't get to cook very often together and we don't get to eat very often together, especially when it's not in a restaurant. So this Eucharistic meal, you know, you would walk into a storefront in Brooklyn and be given a name tag and asked to help set the table. That was the first thing that happened was you were kind of drawn right into the preparation of the meal as if you had arrived at someone's house for Thanksgiving or something like that. And then we would sing a blessing of the light and light candles and then sing a Eucharistic prayer over our bread and break that bread and share it. And the meal would continue sort of interspersing back and forth between more formal elements of the liturgy and and more informal things like just talking with your neighbor at the table. There was a poem that was read. We blessed the cup at the end of the meal. There were announcements and a final hymn, and everyone went home feeling very sated, I would
0: say. As we're thinking about this service, help us also to think about the physical space. So is it light? Is it dark? You mentioned that there's dinner. So I'm assuming people are sitting around tables. What shape are the tables? Help us to see that visual there.
1: It's a long, skinny storefront on the first floor of a block in Brooklyn that's kind of mostly residential. So there's apartments all around it and there's a big window at the front so there's light that pours in and then when you come in it's a very narrow small space but there's three tables that are kind of lined up headed toward the back of the church and at the back of the space there's a kitchen and a big area to do dishes and all of it was constructed in a in a way that was meant to be as communal as possible so that everyone could be in the kitchen everything was labeled so everyone could find whatever it was they needed Almost like I actually modeled it in some ways around a Montessori classroom where all the shelves are open and people can bring down the materials to kind of interact with.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt and our guest today is Emily M.D. Scott. We're talking about her recent memoir, For All Who Hunger, Searching for Communion in a Shattered World. Well, one of the things that I think is important in addition to getting a sense of the physical layout of the church is also getting a sense for my listeners of what the neighborhood was like. So there was a very particular character to this neighborhood in Brooklyn. It had a history. Tell us a little bit about that history.
1: So St. Lydia's was just a little ways away from a canal in Brooklyn called the Gowanus Canal and as i lived in that neighborhood and was a pastor in that neighborhood i found myself drawn more and more deeply into the history and luckily when you live in Brooklyn there's someone who's written a book about the neighborhood that you live in <laughs> so i was able to get that book and read it and learn about so many individuals who you know had come before me in that neighborhood but the canal of course used to be a marsh and the lenape indians used to make their home around that canal and when Dutch Settlers came, industry started to build up around it. And through the years, all the different industries that were located on that canal, like textile mills and foundries, just poured any of their refuse and anything that the mill created right into the canal. And it became this just, just this place for all kinds of polluting factors to sort of pile up through the years. Eventually, it was kind of built not so much as a as a stream or an estuary, but more as this kind of like manufacturing canal. And it didn't have any water at the head of it. So it just sort of sat there, all this toxic slime and sludge, and now has been designated a Superfund site. It's one of the most polluted waterways in our nation. And of course, being a place that was kind of not as desirable because of all that pollution, it was one of the places where New York City decided to put many of our low-income neighbors, and so there are a variety of public housing units that are right up around that canal, which became very important to me and to all of my neighbors when Hurricane Sandy made landfall in New York City because there was polluted water just spilling everywhere, mostly into the basements and homes of low-income people, whereas higher-income
0: people didn't have so much of a problem. Well, that was one of the things that struck me about your book, For All Who Hunger. So I have been to seminary. I have been around people who have the missionary zeal and they wanted to be church planters. But oftentimes, my experience of how well-meaning church founding went was that they would come into a neighborhood and they would basically be absentee except when the services happened, and that they would really not engage with the people in the neighborhood, but they were trying to sort of draw a commuter crowd to a low-rent area in the in the city where they could afford to get their church built up. You had a very different approach. You were very, and your congregants were very much a part of the neighborhood, and you were very much you mentioned that you were, you were preaching in sort of a raw style. My understanding from your book is that oftentimes you were drawing from things that you encountered there in the streets, that you were in, you were drawing from things that were part of the real life of your neighbors. And I'd, I'd love to hear more about that process and whether that was an intention when you went into this or whether that was something that developed over time.
1: Yeah, I think your critique is absolutely right, that church planters can be a kind of colonizing force in neighborhoods. And there has been a lot of writing and reflection about that over recent years. You know, St. Lydia's, I was founding St. Lydia's in 2008. And I would say that I went into it in a very kind of, not exactly a Pollyanna fashion, <laughs> but I didn't have a, a lot of awareness around my relationship to the city that I lived in. And I was very focused on creating a place that was for people who were very much like me, which were postmodern deconstructionists, like people who we were drawn to faith and drawn to God, but also part of our faith was in sort of taking faith apart and understanding it and asking questions about the Bible and asking questions about theology. And in those first years as the church got started, you know, we were very successful in drawing a lot of people that were engaged in that conversation. And they were mostly, you know, well educated, mostly white, mostly younger people. And What was beautiful about that is that we created a space for people that weren't finding a space in church. Some of them have been harmed by church. Some of them were part of the LGBTQ community and had been actively pushed out of church. So there was a real need for that space. But I think the more that we created a place of welcome at St. Lydia's that was really focused around the newcomer, um, everything we did in worship was, was geared towards someone who was there for the first time. And setting a table where anyone who walked in the door was welcome. And all kinds of people did walk in the door. And my experience was that the more different people walked in the door, the more I felt kind of drawn outside the doors of the church to to build relationship and to be in community. The table would not let me create a place that was exclusive or create a dinner club instead of a, a congregation that was turned outward. So it started slowly but gradually we became more engaged in the neighborhood and and we started out by having what was called a season of listening where I taught the congregation how to do one-on-ones in kind of community organizing style and we started to meet people in our neighborhood and get to know them and then by the time we kind of moved into our own storefront space that I described, and that, that took some time to get to that place where we had our own designated building, it was very clear to me that we were guests in this neighborhood and we needed to tread very lightly and to see ourselves as part of a long history as opposed to like, you know, arriving in town with like lights flashing and being like, we're here. <laughs> that just didn't, didn't feel appropriate anymore. So really, I think God taught
0: me along the way how to have more humility and and how to live in relationship. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Pastor Emily M.D. Scott. She's the founder of St. Lydia's Dinner Church, which is a progressive LGBTQ plus affirming congregation in Brooklyn, New York, where worship takes place around dinner tables. She's a Lutheran pastor in the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. Today we're discussing her recent book, For All Who Hunger, Searching for Communion in a Shattered World. We'll be back in a moment. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Emily M.D. Scott. She's a pastor in the Evangelical Lutheran Church of of America, and she is a church planter. And so we're discussing both her experiences planting St. Lydia's Church in New York City and some of her other work as well. She's the author of the recent memoir, For All Who Hunger, Searching for Communion in a Shattered World. Well, there's a point early on in your book, For All Who Hunger, where the following exchange takes place. You write that a friend asks you, why did you decide to become a pastor? And you respond kind of in your head, I didn't decide. It wasn't a choice. If you feel comfortable telling me and my listeners a little bit about what it was that drew you, what it was that made you aware of the fact that you had a calling, I'd be fascinated to hear about that.
1: I think that the call to be a pastor is something that's very complicated for anyone who's a woman, especially for a woman who's unmarried. And my relationship to my gender and my singleness and my sexuality and my femininity was all kind of tangled up as I was a young adult kind of discerning this process, this call to be a pastor. I remember feeling like something was kind of happening to me that I was not choosing. <laughs> it was like slightly against my will. <laughs> and um that's a theme that we see all over the Bible where people are very reluctant prophets, you know, God really has to convince a lot of different people that that they can do this. <laughs> and there's a lot of protestation that happens along the way. So you know, I went to divinity school and it was very clear that I didn't want to be a pastor. I didn't want to take care of people. I didn't want to deal with their feelings. I just didn't feel drawn to any of that. I was interested in church and the arts and liturgy in a sort of academic way, but I kind of sort of kept getting drawn back into church, and when I arrived in New York City, I was meeting all these people who were who were looking for community. and felt this kind of instinctive pull of well what would it look like to create this community for these people who are so hungry and the piece of it that had to do with being a pastor was sort of like a unpleasant side effect for a long time and i really sort of kicked and screamed my way through that process i think because i felt like i would lose something of who i was in the process there is this kind of image of pastors and priests especially women who are kind of desexualized or don't have I think the church kind of asks them to leave a part of themselves behind because we find feminine sexuality to be threatening and scary. And I really didn't want to lose that part of myself. And I think another piece of it was that I wasn't really sure at the time who I was. I've now come out as as genderqueer and I have a, a different understanding of my gender as being much more expansive than I did at the time. So living as a young woman in New York City trying to date there's kind of a very specific understanding of, of who is desirable and I was really wrestling my way through all of that so yeah there was there's a lot of loss in being a pastor I mean you lose the ability to you lose some freedom in terms of how you relate to other people in an open way you're kind of always in the role whether you want to or not but I also found that the day after I was ordained I felt more myself than I had ever felt before, and that was not something that I had anticipated.
0: There's so much in that that I want to get into, but there's a couple follow-on questions that I think will help my listeners to follow and to clarify, and in particular, I'm going to draw some some pieces from your book, For All Who Hunger. So at one point in your book, you talk about one of the people that you knew and that worked with you in various ways around St. Lydia's, and one was Daniel, who was an Episcopal priest, but he, you also mentioned that he was a former monk and that in some ways he still carried himself like a monk. And so I want to ask you about, you mentioned the, the kind of day after you had your ordination, and I'm wondering you've spoken about this both positively and negatively in terms of being a woman and a pastor. Does the ordination make you feel like you carry yourself differently in the world? Or does it make you, I I guess that's what I'm trying to get at, is, is does it give you some sort of bearing like Daniel had, and you describe he sort of carried himself still like a monk. Do you carry yourself in a certain way as a pastor?
1: I think the ordination for me individually, was a sort of affirmation of who I am and what my call is. And that feels very integrated to me. I feel very clear on, at this point in my life, (laughs) on what God's asking me to do and that that comes from a sense of freedom and joy. And, you know, I plant churches because I love creating spaces where people encounter God. And that piece of it feels so beautiful and so free and so of myself. I think the piece of it that feels really tricky and difficult is everything that the culture kind of projects onto people, in particular women who are connected to the church. And all of that is kind of rooted in all the different sort of theological understandings that folks might have picked up along the way. Like one of them is that, like, don't swear in front of a pastor. <laughs> like she's like that somehow you're more holy than everyone else and that you because of this holiness, you're more fragile in some way, which I've never understood because to me, being a pastor just means that I want to kind of revel in all of life. But there's this kind of tiptoeing that people start to do around you that's very uncomfortable and it feels like it distances me from people as opposed to connecting me to them. So I think the pieces of it that have been difficult to me are more about what people put on me as opposed to kind of who I am and what my call is.
0: So I'm going to sort of move in a direction in our conversation. And it's gonna take me a couple of steps. So so <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> so I'm gonna start with a phrase that you used a few moments ago in our conversation. You described yourself as genderqueer. If you mm-hmm. would be willing to just make sure that my audience is clear what you mean by that term, just briefly define it for us.
1: So genderqueer means that you're someone who finds yourself somewhere in the in-between on the gender spectrum. So we often think of sort of men and women as these two binaries who are on different poles But a lot of research and a lot of lived experience has shown that through history, there are people that find themselves in the middle somewhere. And as a genderqueer person, I find that there's elements of masculinity and femininity that kind of come together in who I am. I do understand myself to be a woman. Some people who are genderqueer would understand themselves to be neither, but I'm a genderqueer woman.
0: Well, and so this, thank you for that. And this begins to sort of lay down the framework that I'm going to try and lightly tread out upon. So Mm -hmm. in your book, For All Who Hunger, one of the things that really... Struck me was how clearly you were writing about a sense of alienation that you felt from those around you, those who were your age, who were getting into relationships and who were going through the sort of expected stereotypical stages of life. You found yourself in some ways excluded from that, and part of that was because of your identity as a pastor. And what struck me was that when you would disclose this identity to people, they would react in ways they would withdraw from you. And what struck me again and again is how parallel this is to the ways in which, as I have heard it reported, people who are who come out in various ways find themselves reacted to by communities. And I'm mm. wonder, I'm wondering if that parallel feels like it is it has some solidity to you, or whether you feel like that's an inaccurate parallel, and you'd you'd maybe state it in a different way. But I'd be interested in your thoughts and reaction to to that observation.
1: I think that's really interesting. I've never thought about it, but I think there is a parallel in that when someone comes out, whether that's a gender or sexuality coming out or, you know, I I sort of came out in a certain way as a as a pastor. I sort of stepped into my full calling as a human being. I think that there's a tremendous amount of kind of joy and emergence into this kind of full sense of call of who you are as a person. And at the same time, there's often a very negative reaction around that sense of fullness from people who have known you to be a certain thing um, or have a certain set of expectations around you. And I think that for some people seeing someone in all of their fullness is actually very threatening because it, it causes them to question decisions that they've made through their lives. I think particularly of an interview I heard recently with Yvette Flunder, Reverend Yvette Flunder. And when she came out, her mother said, if I sort of affirm and love you, it'll make everything I've believed foolish because her whole life she had believed that LGBTQ people couldn't be loved by God. And so it it sort of calls everything into question for people, and that's very difficult. I think the piece about reactions to me in the world as a woman and as a pastor had a different sort of lens or a different, it was a slightly different light because I think what was happening there was very specifically gendered and that men who are used to being in in relationship with women in a purely sexual sort of objectified way, which is how many men sort of move through the world. Like women are these sort of sexualized objects that they can be in relationship with. When I said, I'm a pastor, it shattered like everything that they knew about what was sacred and what was kind of profane in their minds. And it really kind of brought the sort of virgin horror dichotomy like right in front of their face. (laughs) And it sort of caused them to like have a like a little meltdown like as if they were if they were a computer, they would have just like shut down, you know, they couldn't compute these two different pieces of like a sexualized, I won't say sexualized, but A woman who has sexuality and a woman who is in touch with God. Our culture really wants to keep those two things separate, especially American culture. And when they come together, there's a lot of worry and threat that comes up in our society at large, but in particular, I think around the way men are used to responding to women.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Emily M.D. Scott. We're talking about her recent book, For All Who Hunger, Searching for Communion in a Shattered World. You mentioned just a moment ago, getting in touch with your fullness as a human being. And that made me think of a wonderful moment towards the end of your book, For All Who Hunger, where you, you went with your congregants to participate in your first New York Gay Pride Parade. And you said that there was a point at which you just felt your body dancing. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm curious, as you're thinking back about your calling and this conversation that we're having about the pastorate, was there a point in your journey as a pastor either as a new pastor or at some point along the way with your work at st lydia's or maybe even after where you felt yourself beginning to dance as a pastor in that same similar way that you danced and you described dancing at that pride parade
1: i think that the image of that pride parade is kind of it represents a stage that I had reached as a as a person and as a pastor that felt much more integrated. In the book, there's a description of taking time away from the church, and it's just before I decide that it's actually time to leave and to let them kind of let the congregation grow up and move into their next stage, and I'm going to go off and move into whatever's next for me. And I think actually that time, taking, taking time away from the congregation, I took like a five-week sabbatical, taught me so much about who I was separate from St. Lydia's. In many ways, being a church planter is kind of like being a parent. You know, you sort of raise this little organism from, <laughs> from, from just its very infancy. And there can be a lot of merging that takes place in that process. And I remember when I went on the sabbatical saying to them, I need to find out who I am without you. And you all need to discover who you are without me. And that was really very much what happened. And I think that it allowed me to kind of get a more full vision of who I was and to bring that back to the church with a lot more joy. I think I had kind of constructed a little bit of a cage around, you know, this complicated relationship of like a person and a pastor and my congregants. And there actually was more freedom available to me to to bring my whole self to them. But it, it took a little distance to discover that.
0: So I want to just stick with this a little while longer, because there are some points in your book, For All Who Hunger, where you you raise an issue in a couple of different ways. Uh, At one point, you say that you've befriended the discomfort of your role as a pastor. I love that phrase of befriending the discomfort. But then later in your book, you talk about the various tombs that we sit outside. And you say, my tomb that I sit outside, you, Emily Scott, the pastor, is perfectionism. And you linger outside that tomb. And in our conversation just now, you've described a sort of point of joy, a point of integration. And so I'm curious whether you would characterize this point of joy and in and integration as being a point at which you have abandoned sitting outside that tomb of perfectionism and abandoned your discomfort of your role as a pastor or you've learned a way to grow with those as a part of you how would you describe this integration and joy with those images that you bring up in the book
1: the sitting outside of the tomb for me it took a long time to to find a way to walk away from that tomb, <laughs> to let go of some of the perfectionism, and I would say that it continues to be something that I'm engaging in. I think that that letting go of that sense of constantly needing to be good, to be right, to have everything exactly right and perfect... I thought that hanging on to that perfectionism was what was going to make me a good pastor, but in fact, letting go of it was what made me a good pastor. It was such an impediment, that need to kind of have everything right and perfect all the time. And in fact, it kind of got in the way of my relationship with God, because I think being a person of faith. Means relinquishing a lot of what we think we can control and allowing God to do that work instead. In the book, I talk about a mentor who who told me to let God do the heavy lifting, and I was very bad at doing that. Like I thought I had to do all the heavy lifting by myself. <laughs> but the tomb image, I think, continues to speak to me, especially from as a Lutheran you know lutherans have this notion that we kind of return to the waters of baptism for this daily dying and rising and it's not just a kind of once and done it's that we you know every day every week return to the water and die in christ and rise in christ and i think that's a that's an image that's very much connected to the tomb that it's this sort of daily resurrection we're kind of always letting go of the things that are clinging to us and kind of calling us into ways of death and, you know, hopefully allowing ourselves to be resurrected in new ways. And I think that as a spiritual leader, as a clergy person, I have to be engaged in that process myself first in order to bring it to other people and in order to create that space. And of course, you never you never reach the end of it. You never reach a point where you're like, okay, I did it. I did the work. I'm a good pastor now. <laughs> but, but it's almost the the engagement in self, I think that gives you that sense of fodder and that process and work that enables you to be able to open space for others to do that as well.
0: Well, it strikes me throughout this portion of the conversation we've been talking about gender identity we've been talking about joy and feeling integrated we've been talking about perfectionism and feeling like we need to do the heavy lifting and god cannot do the or god shouldn't do the heavy lifting that we need to spare god that somehow <laughs> one of the things that strikes me throughout this part of the conversation is is that you very pointedly At many points through For All Who Hunger, make it clear that when you are preaching and when you are referring to the divine presence within the worship space and within the space of the words of your book, you refer to God with feminine pronouns. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that especially in light of what we've been saying about a god who can take on some of the heavy lifting and a god who is not necessarily wanting us to be perfect before we're loved bring together for me that and and mm. this intentional sort of use of feminine pronouns around invoking the person of god
1: mm. well saint lydia's as well as the book itself are both steeped in a very a very rich feminist theology saint lydia's liturgically is really formulated to be a deeply feminist liturgical experience even the act of making church in a kitchen i think is is incredibly subversive <laughs> like it places the holy and the act of doing church in a place that often has been relegated to women and given only to women and at the same time like there's this kind of doubleness to that because i think of the joy harjo poem like the world begins at the kitchen table like there is so much Power in the way that women have made community and have made family, and so much, so much power in the work that women do that is often unseen. So I think kind of bringing the Eucharist into this very um, home cooked, homemade meal sort of a place is this very kind of subversive move, and I always really enjoyed that. The church itself was called Saint Lydia's; is called Saint Lydia's, and you know. Lydia is often kind of remembered for her hospitality, like hosting the disciples when they came out of prison. But when you kind of read between the lines, it becomes clear that she herself was a priest. She was hosting a church and was the leader of that church. So I just love all those kind of like subversive layers of everything here. But I think in terms of St. Lydia's and creating that feminist liturgical space, the church was founded by two women you know, my voice as preacher was, was, woven through always. And the recognition that our experience as the people of God is a place where God comes and speaks to us, I think is very feminist. There's an understanding that we don't need God to be filtered through someone else who kind of delivers the holy to us. Instead, there's an understanding that we already know God kind of in our souls and our spirits, and it's more an uncovering and an unveiling. So I could go on about that for a long time. But I think that naming God as she is such an important part of that process because it completely changes our conception of who God is and how God operates. And I I love just kind of peppering it through our readings at St. Lydia's like we'd be reading a psalm and suddenly there'd be this feminine pronoun for God that, you know, I had flipped out so that it would be read out loud and it just it just in a moment the whole psalm kind of changes. But I think that All of that is kind of always tied up in our notions of gender and the ways that we kind of read particular attributes into gender. And God, of course, is so much larger than any of that. So I think, you know, God can be strong, God can be parental, God can be nurturing, God can be gentle, God can be, you know, an earthquake and a still small voice, you know, all of this sort of like multivalent expression of the sacred and of beauty.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Emily M.D. Scott. We're discussing her recent memoir, For All Who Hunger, Searching for Communion in a Shattered World. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you're probably aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of them is the Commonweal podcast, produced by my friends over at Commonweal Magazine. For almost a century now, Commonweal has staked a claim for Catholic principles and perspectives in American life and for lay people's voices within the church. Their podcast features a wide spectrum of voices discussing art, politics, religion, and civil society. Each episode offers 3 or 4 segments that amplify the pages of the print magazine and move into new frontiers. I've been a reader of Commonweal for a long time, and I'm thrilled to share this new podcast with you, whether you're a long-time reader yourself or just discovering it for the first time. You can find the Commonweal podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts, as well as on their website, commonwealmagazine.org/podcast. That's commonwealmagazine.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Today we're talking to Emily M.D. Scott. She's a church planter and she has worked planting churches both in New York and now in Maryland. We're discussing her recent memoir, For All Who Hunger, Searching for Communion in a Shattered World. Well, throughout our conversation, we have made reference to the fact that you are a church planter. And by that, I mean that you have founded or co-founded multiple churches in your career as a pastor. But maybe for my listeners, if we could flesh out a little bit what that means, what does it mean to you when you are described or you describe yourself as a church planter?
1: It means that I am someone who is creating a new spiritual community from scratch. And it is kind of like a mix between being an entrepreneur and an artist and a business person sometimes (laughs) and a pastor all sort of mixed into one. It's a little bit like starting a new nonprofit in that you're starting kind of a new organization. And it's also to me a lot like creating a work of art because you are creating something ostensibly from nothing, but your materials are the movement of the Holy Spirit and people, which means that there's a lot of responsibility involved because people are are real and you want to treat them with love and care and respect in the act of making something new
0: collaboratively together. There's more that I want to find out about this. You mentioned entrepreneur, artist, business person these are not these are not often <laughs> adjectives that we apply to clergy and so i'm I'm wondering first of all, uh, was this something that you learned how to do in seminary, or did you was it extra seminary uh, I don't even know how to say this was it was it add extra to your seminary experience to learn how to do this?
1: It was absolutely. Extra, um, and it and it continues to be extra in all the different ways, but um, it was not something I knew was really possible when I was in seminary per se, and I sort of discovered that it was possible actually through a family connection because my my half-sister's father is the priest who founded St. Gregory of Nyssa in San Francisco, and our family is kind of amazing in that I'm in relationship with my mom's ex-husband, which is complicated, but I went out to do an internship at that church and found something that I had kind of been looking for all my life, which was a congregation that was doing really interesting and experimental things with liturgy and had the flexibility to do that because they were only about 40 years old. And my interest in liturgy just kind of exploded when I was in, when I was there. That was the primary way I had, I had been engaged when I was in divinity school is I loved liturgy and the arts and music and loved creating creative worship services. So I think that kind of sparked the idea. And then when I moved to New York and kind of found myself surrounded by all these seekers who were really looking for a spiritual space, I kind of fell into it without even kind of realizing what was happening. I mean, in some ways, St. Lydia's kind of came into being without me sort of assenting. (laughs) It sort of ran out ahead of me and I was running behind following, which is sort of the best way to do creative work, I think.
0: Well, I'm curious, as you have been now involved in not one but multiple church plantings, do you find, I mean, clearly this is a direction that churches in general, denominations in general, need to be moving. They need to be thinking about more agile ways to be communities of worship. They need to think about the new ways that they can be entrepreneurial because clearly old models are breaking down but i so i can see how a denomination or a a local group of churches would be very supportive of this kind of work i can also because i've been around institutions all my life i can also see how they would be very resistant in some ways to this kind of innovation And without naming names and without getting us into too much trouble, I'm curious if you could sort of give us a quick overview of both the good and the bad, the places where you have found really good support from denominations and other churches and places where you have encountered resistances from various institutions, whether within or outside the church.
1: I have been very lucky in that I landed with the ELCA. It was not the tradition I grew up in. And I honestly, I describe in the book the way that I just wandered into a Lutheran church one day, and that ends up being the congregation that sort of helps St. Lydia's get up off the ground. And it's just this total act of the spirit. But the Lutheran church was able to offer St. Lydia's support in a very beautiful way, I think, in part because their expectations around diversity and worship are very... They don't have a sense that all worship should look the same. They did want to see that I was actively engaged in Lutheran theology. And once they kind of saw that and trusted it, even though what we were doing looked really different from like your average Sunday morning Lutheran church, they could see that we were kind of meant to be in the same flock together (laughs) and they sort of took me under their wing which was really beautiful to experience and i think that's a huge piece of this is that you know our churches don't have to be organized like franchises they don't have to kind of come out of the assembly line all looking the same but we can find kind of enough connection and continuity theologically to to give each other safe harbor, if that makes sense. There have been really, really difficult moments along the road. And I think that one piece about doing something new is that there's often an assumption that the new thing that you're doing is a critique of what has come before. And for me, that's never been the case. It's just been true to me that we need lots of different expressions of the Christian church that different people can find their ways to because... God made a very diverse world. <laughs> so I've always seen it as like a both and, but I think sometimes people see a new thing and they start to think that what they have or what they care about or what they grew up with is not enough. And I think especially considering the decline, the sort of the the, sh- the great shift that's happening in Christendom right now, it's kind of very easy to go to that place. And there can be a feeling of threat and worry that, that comes up. But to me, it's it's really much more complex than like the old is passing away and a new thing is is coming. I mean, I think there's going to be so many varied expressions of Christendom as we move into this new time. And there's going to be very old ways of being and very institutionalized ways of being church that continue forward and also very new expressions and trying to figure out how to fund those and uphold them and give them support is is a huge question for the church right now.
0: I'm struck by what you just said about how some in the church are resistant to these kind of innovations because they feel like it's a critique of what's come before and that you're moving in the direction of something new. But I was struck, as you were saying that, by something that that happened when you were just beginning to have the idea of helping to plant St. Lydia's. And one of the ways that you're describing this to one of those supportive ELCA clergy Along the way, is you say this would be more like what the church was in the first century in the time of Jesus, when people were gathering together around meals and hearing the gospel, mm-hmm. and and so my question to you is: is this really moving forward into a new thing, or is it moving backward?
1: <laughs> I think it's probably both at the same time. I mean, for me, there was a lot about dinner church and experimenting with a liturgical pattern of dinner church that was about reclaiming something that we had potentially lost along the way. And I think that one thing that happens as any kind of organization becomes more established is that they kind of accrue a lot of like scaffolding and mechanisms and bylaws and like all kinds of things around them that can sometimes hold them back from their actual vocation. And at a certain point, you could kind of forget why you started doing this in the first place. And I think one of the beautiful things about St. Lydia's was that we we weren't purists, we weren't trying to recreate how the church had been in the first century, and we weren't saying that that was better. But we were saying that it might be interesting to see what happened if we just let go of a lot of the excess and just went back to the absolute basics, which were a table and bread and wine and oil and water. And just to see what happened if we just really immersed ourselves in those symbols. And one of my goals which was taught to me by a a wonderful mentor, Rick Fabian, was to, to let the symbols speak for themselves. That I wanted people to be able to come into the congregation and see exactly what was happening and not ever to have to explain to people well, this little wafer stands for bread and we're breaking it as a foretaste of the Eucharistic feast and we're blessing it. I wanted them to like feel that in a completely sensory way right off the bat when they walked into the room. I mean, you came into tables that were laden with food and we were breaking bread and passing it around and sharing it. It was very clear that like this was a a vision of the kingdom of heaven. And when we baptize people, you know, we completely douse them in water and it was a washing and a cleansing and a rebirth and all of it. Yeah. So creating that space where we could just kind of immerse ourselves in the symbols of
0: Christianity. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt and our guest today is Emily M.D. Scott. We're talking about her recent memoir, For All Who Hunger, Searching for Communion in a Shattered World. Well, I'm aware that now you have moved on from St. Lydia's and you have begun the process of planting a new church in Baltimore, Maryland called Dreams and Visions. If you're comfortable discussing it, I would love to know, are you finding that your experience at St. Lydia's has completely prepared you for this new church plant and you're not making any mistakes at all? Or are you finding that you're revisiting some of the old obstacles in new ways? Or how would you describe the process now of, of this new church plant?
1: I'm definitely still making mistakes, lots and lots of mistakes. And at the same time, it feels a little bit like having what I imagine having your second child feels like where you're sort of less obsessively anxious. about how it's all going to turn out and that that probably is good for the kid in as much as it is is also good for you. St. Lydia's, there was like so much focus and so much intensity and I was very aware that I was doing this for the first time. I was unordained for a lot of it and so I didn't have a sense of authority. I was figuring out, you know, everything about my pastoral identity, like all at the same time. And so coming into Dreams and Visions, I kind of know who I am as a person and as a pastor. I've... Done this before. And so some of the very scary moments where it kind of, or the very kind of low moments where you feel like, oh my gosh, this is never going to happen, that all feels familiar. Like I'm sort of like, oh yeah, I remember this from the first time around. Like it will pass, it won't last forever. So there's a sense of not having to invent everything for the first time. And that's a relief. And I think it actually frees me up to create in new ways and to collaborate in new ways that feel. Like they're held a little bit more loosely, which is probably a gift for both me and the congregation.
0: I'm struck by one of the chapters later in your book, For All Who Hunger. It's the chapter called Three Miracles. And in that, you sort of take three almost everyday coincidences the signing of a lease. The fact that a person is going to have their last day as an ice cream vendor and they decide to just let go of all their stock in front of your church and also a person who's interning at your church whose mother forgot to baptize him and so he ends (laughs) up getting baptized at your church. These are wonderful stories and you you elevate them to the level of kind of filtering them, understanding them as miracles. I'm wondering if you, again, if you feel comfortable sharing, have you encountered any kind of miraculous moments in this new plant at uh, the Dreams and Visions community in Baltimore, Maryland? Have you encountered places where you have seen God do the heavy lifting.
1: Oh, absolutely. That's the thing about church planting. I mean, it is such a miracle in that the whole time you're doing it, you feel like you have so little to offer. You just feel really like, why would anyone ever be part of this? Like, I don't know why. Um, You just feel always inadequate to the task and always as if the thing you're trying to create, like, no one would ever be able to see it. And yet, there are these moments, which I can only call sort of God moments, where it's kind of like the curtain gets pulled back and everyone who's there sees what God is up to and like where the community is going. And they are these very kind of transcendent, rare moments. And you cannot control when they happen. Often there's a very long period of time when you're like just slogging along, thinking like this is just a terrible idea. <laughs> and then at a certain point along the way, It just becomes clear that you have to keep going and there have been so many of those moments i think at dreams and visions and you know it's hard sometimes because there's some stories that i can't tell and i wish that i could tell them but i can't because of confidentiality issues but dreams and visions is really fashioned around a community of people who have often been told that god is not for them or they don't deserve god because of their identity and i think that the The most clear moments of Miracle have been around the ways that they have held their own belovedness in ways that are so extraordinary and outside of what we often expect to encounter when we come to church. So one example that I will give is we've only been around for two years, but each year that we've been around, we've held a queer Christmas pageant. And I sort of kicked this off because I was aware that so many LGBTQ folks in Baltimore felt so much pain around Christmas. You know, either you've been booted out of your church or you've been kind of disconnected from your family. And you you can often just feel very alone and, and very isolated, especially around Christmas time. And there's a lot of depression that comes up. And I thought, like, let's create a Christmas experience that's just for queer people and that feels like very, very queer. <laughs> and so, you know, I invited all of these folks who I'd gotten to know at the Pride Center to come and play parts in this pageant and everyone who arrived got to wear a costume and the message was very much like this story belongs to you no matter what you've been told and seeing you know the young 17-year-old trans woman who played Mary you know with a halo on her head kind of strutting up and down like just being her full self and like fully incarnate fr- fully sacred was absolutely one of those moments because you just thought, you know, this is like God in our midst, basically. It was astonishing and beautiful. So creating that space, I think, for people to bring just a full sense of self and not try and fit themselves into something that feels acceptable to what the church has often asked us to be, but instead to kind of go to where they are, like go to their sense of the sacred. That's been
0: hugely important. That image of how they held their own belovedness, that's going to stick with me for a while. And I appreciate so much, and I, I recognize that there are moments of confidentiality, but just that little glimpse that you were able to give us is, is so hopeful for me. I'm so grateful for that. I, In our final few moments together, I want to turn this outward, because we're at a time where I think a lot of people are feeling very constrained and very much like they are trapped and what we what we've been talking about for the past hour is really stretching our vision beyond the horizon and the things that we can't see that really are made manifest to us because we have the we have the trust and the faith to step out and to begin the journey I know that there are gonna be people who are listening to our conversation who maybe have a glimmer of something that they feel a tug to do but they haven't yet figured out how to unearth the courage to begin to do it and I just wonder if you had any words of encouragement or any ways of kind of helping to line out the first steps for somebody who is feeling that kind of call because you were there once too I wonder if you would share some words of encouragement with my listeners as a way of concluding our conversation today.
1: I wrote the book in the hopes that it could be a companion for people who feel that way, who have a sense of like a glimmer of something that just kind of keeps knocking or keeps nudging at them and they can't really get rid of it. (laughs) That was absolutely how it was for me. And my feeling is that the knocking never goes away. Like you... God won't stop asking you (laughs) to kind of step into this full sense of your call. And my experience was that it never stopped being terrifying. And I never stopped doubting myself. And I never got to a place where I felt really secure, especially that first go around with St. Lydia's. And I still continue to feel that sense of being kind of off kilter. But I actually think that that's maybe one of the most beautiful things about following your call is that you don't have to be perfectly balanced. Um, Like That's not actually what God is asking for us to do. God is just asking us to keep kind of stepping out and stepping forward. And so many pieces that you don't have come along the way and find you in ways that you never could have anticipated or expected. There's so much that's out of our control. And also there's so much that God has in store. So to try and kind of have that sense of trust as you step out into the unknown
0: is a huge piece of the work. Well, Emily Scott, I have to say that I found your book For All Who Hunger to just be amazing, and I said this at the top of the show, both in its candor but also in what it helped to reveal to me about aspects of my own journey that I had not completely reflected upon, but I realized that there has been the hand of the divine mothering in my own journey. Uh, I was helped to see that by the work that you did here. I hope that you continue planting churches. I really hope that you continue writing books. I would love to have you come back and talk to us about more of this, all of this in the future, but thank you so much for taking the time today. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you.
1: Thank you. It was such a pleasure. I I had such a good time.
0: (laughs) We've been speaking today with Emily M.D. Scott. She founded St. Lydia's Dinner Church, a progressive LGBTQ affirming congregation in Brooklyn, New York, where worship takes place around the dinner table. She's a Lutheran pastor in the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America. She's a graduate of Yale Divinity School and the Institute of Sacred Music, and her writing has appeared in the New York Times. Her work at St. Lydia's has sparked a wider dinner church movement and has been featured in the Wall Street Journal and the Atlantic. After serving eight years at St. Lydia's, Scott is now creating a new church community, Dreams and Visions, in Baltimore, Maryland.